If you would, please, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 4. As we read, starting at verse 12 through the end of this chapter. Matthew chapter 4 recounts the two preliminaries of Jesus' ministry, and then it introduces us to his ministry. And so we've seen both his baptism and his temptation, and now we are at the beginnings of his ministry. So Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes thus, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles... The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, And Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades But the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this passage. We thank you for your gospel command, your gospel summons. We thank you for the good news breaking into our history. We thank you. God, grant that we would be found faithful stewards of your word and that we would respond appropriately to your word. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. All right, well, brothers and sisters, as I indicated before the scripture reading, chapter 4 
introduces the ministry of Jesus by addressing the two preliminary events that took place immediately preceding his ministry, namely his, his baptism, which basically amounts to his ordination service. In his baptism, he is visibly affirmed by the Father and the Spirit. And then after his baptism, he's, he's tested, he's tried, he's, he's tempted of the devil for 40 days in the wilderness. And having been victorious were both Adam and Israel and more generally humanity have failed, he has been found faithful in all things. And so now he commences his ministry. The, the ministry of Jesus lasted about three years, okay? And his ministry neatly divides into each year. He, there's a, a year of, of relative obscurity with growing popularity. Then his middle year was, was the year where he was like rock star status, where uh, this is where they thought that he was the Messiah or people were probably going to want to crown him by force. He was, he, was the, he was the talk of the land during his second year. But then in his third year, not that his popularity waned, but his third year, his final year of ministry, is characterized by mounting hostility and confrontation with the religious establishment. Okay? So here in Matthew chapter 4, we are introduced to the beginnings of Jesus' ministry. He had done some ministry, as you would learn if you read John 1. He did some preaching down in the land of Judea, the southern part of the territory. Remember that this geographical region, the breakup of it, was essentially that if you think in terms of the, the land of Judea, the province of Judea, think of it in terms of maybe like the state of Texas, just not nearly so big. The scale over there is nowhere near what we're talking here, okay? So for example, the Bible mentions the Sea of Galilee, right? Okay, raise your hand if you're familiar with the Sea of Galilee. You've heard it before, right? Okay, it's not a sea in any sense of the word. And in terms of a body of water, it's almost exactly twice the size of Lake Conroe. So it's, it's just a lake, okay? But from their perspective, whoa, it's a sea, okay? So again, don't, when I say that Judea is like Texas, don't, don't think of it in terms of the scale. Just think it's the southern. And then Samaria would be Oklahoma, just north of us. And then Galilee would be Kansas, just north of Oklahoma, okay? So... And the reason I think it's somewhat helpful to think in terms of states is each region had its own sort of leadership. Each region was governed, had a form of governance. Each region had its, had its customs. So not as hard and fast, perhaps, as our state concept would be. But I need you to understand this isn't all just one state with one governor with one congress or whatever each was a little different which is why it's important to note that the ministry of john takes place in judea judea of course is the big region in the south it's where jerusalem is it's where all the political movers and shakers are 
but he's not in Jerusalem. He's out in the wilderness. And that's where people are going to get baptized. And that's where Jesus himself goes to get baptized. And he's there doing some initial preaching, as you learn in John 1. But Matthew's not concerned with that aspect because he wants to draw our attention to the commencement of Jesus' ministry being in fulfillment of the prophecy to Isaiah, through Isaiah. And so when John the Baptist gets arrested, Jesus learns of it the way any of us learn of it. And I find that incredibly uh, comforting. Um, Be on the lookout whenever you're reading the Gospels for how Jesus comes into acquisition of knowledge. Again, we live in an era where we so lean into the deity of Christ that we just, everything gets defaulted to his divinity. He knows all things from the beginning and the end, da, 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 da. And we forget that in his ministry, he operated as a man. He is a man. He is the God-man. And he learned of John getting arrested. Okay? So that doesn't mean he saw it. It means he heard about it. And when he heard about it, Jesus makes a strategically important decision. Because if you recall, the leadership was coming out to see John. They, they didn't like the, the tremors in the climate that he was causing. They like the status quo being nice and easy. And so Jesus understood, hey, if I stay down here in Judea, where all these political movers and shakers are, where the establishment is, if I stay down here, I'm going to have premature conflict with them. And it was not the time. And so Jesus then, upon the arrest of John, moves. He relocates up to Galilee, out into Hickville, so to speak. He gets away from the limelight, and he goes out into the boonies. So understand this was a strategic decision, but it was a strategic decision of great importance. Because, as we learn, he fulfills in so doing the prophecy uttered by the prophet back in Isaiah chapter 9. He goes up to Galilee, and it's referred to, in passing, as Galilee of the Gentiles. And the reason it was kind of pejoratively called that is even though once upon a time this was the territorial homeland of two tribes of Israel, Naphtali and Zebulun, nonetheless, in ensuing centuries, aided incredibly by the Assyrian deportation, but because of all that hubbub, there was an extremely large Gentile population there in the towns and villages and cities of Galilee. In fact, by the first century, in the first century, what we we know about was at least 50% of the population were Gentiles, okay, at least That's a lot of non-Jews living in Galilee. And so, here in his ministry, while, while focusing his teaching on Jews, 
because he was sent first to the lost sheep of Israel, nonetheless, we have yet again in Matthew a prefiguring of the global mission of Jesus. It's been prefigured before, represented in the coming of the three magi. But here now we have Jesus going to the land of Galilee, pejoratively called by other Jews, Galilee of the Gentiles, because of its extremely large Gentile population. And Jesus makes another strategic decision. He bases his home base out of not Nazareth where he was from, but out of Capernaum. And if you look at the map, you can look at a map and see Nazareth was truly out in the, in the middle of nowhere. It was, it was a, that's why there was so much derision associated with Nazareth. It was a no play, nobody town, out in the middle of nowhere. And so could anything good possibly come from such a backwater place? Well, Jesus came from Nazareth, much to their surprise and chagrin. But he bases his operation out of Capernaum, which is on the, it's right on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, which as we said was about almost exact, if you look at the volume of the Sea of Galilee, it's almost exactly twice that of Conroe Lake, okay? Uh, But Capernaum was on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. And from Capernaum, if you look at the, the map of the cities and towns, he is strategically located for how his ministry is going to get him around that entire region. And this passage wants to paint a picture. If you, if, if you look and, and uh, see that there are five references geographically in verses 12 to 15, And then in verse 25, they give you four geographical markers. We oftentimes look past that, our eyes glaze over. Those are foreign places, foreign names, foreign locations, whatever. But the author is telling you something, one, about the strategic location of where Jesus went so he could have effective reach. But then he wants to paint a picture, Matthew does, of the comprehensiveness of Jesus' fame and reputation and ministry, hearkening perhaps even to the fact that Jesus is the new Joshua. He says in verse 25 that he was in Galilee. His fame spread throughout all of Galilee. Now, if you take a picture of a map of this region, Galilee would be the northwest quadrant. And then it says he was... His, his fame spilled over into the Decapolis, which was a, a mostly Gentile region, but that would be the northeast quadrant. Then coming straight down, it says his fame spread throughout all Jerusalem and Judea, which would be the southwest quadrant, so northwest, southwest, northeast, and then the land across the Jordan, which would be the southwest quadrant. So northeast, northwest, southwest, North, whatever. The point is, is that like the four points of the map, the map is covered. His fame is spread throughout all the land. Wow. So I love how in very brisk manner, Matthew recounts essentially the spread, the rise of Jesus' fame so that he goes, he begins, verse 12, as a relative unknown And then by verse 25, we're kind of caught up to speed, and he's famous throughout the land. 
I love that because in the next chapter, he's going to really dial in then on the teaching of Jesus. But here I want to focus on a few things. Just a few. Just a couple, really. No, there's three. I got to get my math right eventually. Okay, it says that Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. And I think that declaration of what it is he's preaching helps orient us big time. And I want to spend a little bit of energy helping explain and unpack what does it mean to say he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, Understand that we get the word gospel from evangelion, the good news. Understand that that term is inherently political back in the day. It has legal, political connotations. You would not, an average citizen would not, in ordinary conversation, say, hey, good news, I got a promotion at work. We say good news, and we think that that transfers not only in the definition, but in connotation, No, they would say good news, but Evangelion is like a a pronouncement that there's been a child born to the king, that the military has just won a battle, that a major uh, diplomatic, uh, what's it called when two countries reach an agreement? Treaty, a treaty's been signed, thank you so much. So a big political deal is called Evangelion, the good news. So right there, you need to understand that it's orienting us towards the fact that when we hear good news of the gospel, we're talking about the message of a government. And what's that government? It's the government of Jesus, his his kingdom. And we're going to talk about that, but I need to remind you. The gospel that you believe, the the faith that you confess, the spirit that has been given to you. Okay, this is something bigger than just you and your private walk with Jesus. He's a king with a kingdom. And he comes to redeem a people. He comes to make his name great in the earth by spreading his dominion over the earth by means of his people. So there is good news about the forgiveness of your personal sins and and how he meets you and is like a soothing balm to your hurts. That's great. But Jesus did not come to just make you an isolated individual a better version of yourself. He comes as a king to ransom and save his people. Okay? And the kingdom is absolutely essential to understanding Jesus and his teaching. The kingdom is mentioned by Jesus well over 100 times. The kingdom is what he is preaching. When we think kingdom, 
we think back to like, I don't know, Middle Ages. We think of knights and princesses and, 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 and jousting tournaments maybe. Or maybe you have a, a more gritty picture and you're thinking of black death or something. No, don't think of any of that. The word kingdom is kind of like the word love. There, there's a few words in English that we can say are, are nouns of action. And what I mean by that is it can function, it's one word, love, but it can function as a noun or as a verb. And in context is what determines whether I'm referring to the, the noun, the, the thing, the affection, the dedication, the commitment, the desire, the whatever, the nounedness of it, or whether I'm referring to the specific actions of expression. So love is one of the few English words that is a verbal noun, and it's the same with a kingdom in Greek. It's a thing, a kingdom, a place with a certain government, a certain set of customs and laws and traditions and all that, but it's also the act of governance. And so Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God regularly most of his disciple most of his parables i should say are explanations about the kingdom and so the kingdom he addresses it in terms of how one enters it he addresses it in terms of what life is like inside it he addresses it in terms of how it grows he addresses it in terms of what values are important to it much time is spent unpacking the kingdom. But understand that when Jesus saves a person, he is bringing them into his kingdom. When we speak of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, we are speaking about the fact that in the person of Jesus, God's rule an acknowledgement of his lordship is manifest. And so his kingdom is spread when more and more people are acknowledging the lordship of Christ. They implement his vision, values, behaviors, and laws so that the sway of Jesus is extended. That is what it refers to by the kingdom spreading. And so the kingdom is a rule of Christ that we are brought into. And it covers the globe. It is transnational. Not just one ethnicity has it as its claim. And so whatever loyalties we might have according to our ethnicity, our nation of heritage, whatever, they become by necessity, secondary to the priorities and values of this new kingdom of which we have become citizens. So he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. Good news? Well, understand that the good news of it refers to the end part that there's forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the dead. But the gospel in its totality includes the diagnosis 
and the diagnosis is that we are dead in our sins and that we must indeed turn. And so Jesus begins here in this passage by giving us the first word of the gospel. And it's the word that I'm afraid has been lost from much of the modern parlance. We mentioned it in passing a few weeks ago when we looked at chapter 3 because his message is identical to that of John the Baptist. It is verbatim the same as the ministry of John the Baptist when he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is going to go on in like chapter 11 to highlight some of the distinctives and some of the differences between he and John. But here in chapter 4, verse 17, he wants to make it clear that he sees eye to eye with John the Baptist. The first word of the gospel, the first word you need to hear, that you need to understand, that you need to be confronted with, is repent. He's not speaking just of a one-time action. Indeed, as Martin Luther would state later, in the first of his 95 theses, Martin Luther says, when our Lord and Master said, repent, in Matthew 4, 17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. We must continually come face to face with the fact that the entire plan of salvation is necessary precisely because we need Repentance. We are rebels. We turn, each of us, to our own way. And the call to repent is the summons to turn back, to turn away from that which guides the self, to turn to the true and living God. It is a saving grace. It is not merely to be sorry for sin. We all experience regret but it is to hate and abhor one's sin because you see it as it is. And you look to the Lord, the true giver of light and life, for your very way. Indeed, Jesus' coming into the land of Galilee is the fulfillment of Isaiah 9, in which Isaiah 9 tells us that the people dwelling in a land of darkness have seen a great light. And who is Jesus? We learn in John 1, 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. But yet, from John 3, we learn that people don't like the light precisely because they do love the darkness. So Jesus is the light, and he calls us to walk into the light that we might see, that we might live. But yet in our hard-heartedness, in our self-confidence, in our pride, in our hubris, indeed and sometimes in our shame, we prefer to stay in the shadows. But the first word of the gospel nonetheless remains, repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Would you have peace with God? Would you walk 
as a beloved son or daughter of the king, the first word to you is repent. Turn from your self-absorbed ways. Turn from following the prince of the power of the air. Turn from chasing your own aspirations. Turn from being caught up in whatever cultural narrative you have. Turn and see the love of God in light of the face of Christ. In him is life. So turn. The second word of the gospel is given to the disciples in verse 19. A famous and beloved verse. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Before these men could become apostles, they first had to become disciples. Now this passage reads like he walks up to random strangers and, you know, says, follow me. And yes, sir, they drop. And he certainly could have compelled such obedience. But we learn in John chapter 1 that, for example, Andrew and probably John were disciples of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist introduced Andrew and probably John to Jesus. And so it makes total sense that then John would introduce his brother James and Andrew, his brother Simon. So Jesus had had association with these guys before, but now it comes to it. The time for casual association is past. And now the work is to begin. And he summons them to be his disciples, to learn from him. To be a disciple is more than to be a student in any modern conventional sense. If you're a student, you're just sitting in a class and you're going to learn whatever information the teacher presents to you. When you're a disciple, you're studying not just the content of knowledge, the body of knowledge, you are learning the methodology, the way, the way of being. You are seeking to become like that person. And these men, because of their unique specific calling as disciples who would become apostles, they were called to literally lay aside their vocations to let their families go. And, and this, these are points that the disciples themselves are going to remind Jesus of later in, their, later in their time with him. That they literally walked away from their family, from their jobs, from their livelihood to, to follow him. But then Jesus will make a remark that lets us know that this is a general statement for anybody. For anybody who would seek to become one of Christ's. And that is the command to follow Jesus. Ultimately, brothers and sisters, this command here to the, to the disciples is going to be reiterated to the disciples to become the very mission of the church. When he tells the disciples, the now apostles in Matthew 28, to go and make what? To make disciples. Understand, 
that the first word of the gospel is repent. The second is follow me. No one, no one can inherit the kingdom who has not taken up his cross to follow Christ. We are not purchasing fire insurance. We are becoming soldiers of our older brother. We are learning his way, walking in his light. To follow Christ means we die to ourselves. Many teachings of Jesus will drive this point home. I don't want to belabor it now. But understand that the call to follow Christ is fundamentally and inherently a call to take your outlook, dream, vision of life and make it subservient to that of Jesus's. Jesus gets to call the shots. Jesus gets to be in charge of you. He gets to set the agenda, the tone, the pace, the schedule. Now we live and die by our schedule, don't we? We have our plans, we have our ideas. Not once does Jesus ask the disciples what they want to do when they want to go. It's always just follow me. And that is the same with your life. He's in charge. He sets the tone. And to illustrate that, I want to bring it back to the beginning. And that's where we're going to conclude, is at the beginning. John was arrested. Y'all know how long the ministry of John the Baptist lasted? We don't know exactly, but by historical markers, somewhere in the vicinity of 12 to 18 months. He was a meteor shooting across the sky. In 12 to 18 months, he caused such waves that there were followers of his decades later in Ephesus, remember, from Acts 19. In 12 to 18 months, he went from being literally unknown to having caught the attention and the ire of the king. The entire religious establishment was rocked by this lone guy raving out in the wilderness. What do you think John the Baptist was doing before then? We don't know. But I can tell you it was preparatory. And then for 12 to 18 months, he lived out the calling of God. And he did the thing for which God created him. And then he exited stage right. And Jesus came. God is the one who determines our timetable. God determines our steps. God is the one who is the measurer of success. 12 to 18 months in the limelight, that doesn't sound very long-lasting, but he made a mark. We're still talking about John the Baptist. Your life, if you are a Christian, is under the lordship and direction of Jesus. And he will put you and place you 
where you need to be, when you need to be there, all you need to do is be faithful in the moment, just like John was. So brothers and sisters, the first two words of the gospel, repent and follow me. Having repented, will you continue to live a life of repentance? And having followed, will you continue following? Our Lord and our Savior is good, kind, fair, and just. And he rewards those who have left anything and everything to make him their treasure. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for how you guide and direct our steps. We thank you for coming, Jesus, and for preaching the good news of the kingdom. Grant that we would be found faithful citizens, loyal emissaries. Grant that we would live lives characterized by repentance and that we would be dutiful to follow. That we would not prioritize our own way and our own will, but that we would gladly and happily submit to yours. In your name we pray, O Lord. Amen.